Let's pray for Daniel. Dear Lord, thanks so much for this day. Thanks for your goodness and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And, and Lord, we just want to hear from you today. And so please have your way with us and guide us and lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've ever like grew up in church or have any kind of church background or drove down the road and smelled a church, and I say the word Daniel, you're thinking of Daniel in the... Turn to Daniel chapter 6. And herein lies another problem, and that is, you know, familiarity, right? You all knew the story, right? Daniel lies in. So we start, this is actually probably the last week of familiar Daniel stories, and uh, next week it uh, starts getting into uh, a little more unfamiliar prophetic stuff, and uh, so... um, this we regard uh, from the lesson that in it. So be careful, uh, as, as we say, this is a familiar story, right? There's lots of familiarity. John 3.16, is that a familiar verse? Yes. You ever get tired of it? No. Not at all. Not at all. So, that's the story. All right, everybody ready? I learned yesterday that there are people in the room, or at least person in the room, that likes to, um, to, in order to maintain, I hope I'm not embarrassing anybody, um, but in order to sort of, you know, some people, some people kind of keep their interests in different ways, right? Some people do it by drawing pictures, right, of like what we're talking about. So in honor of that, let's see our old friend, right? Remember this guy? You like this guy? Anybody else want to draw him? Right? I think he's kind of cool. This is from Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted the dream for him and said, there's going to be a bunch of empires, and basically you are the the first one, the Babylonian empire represented by that head of gold, and after you is going to come another empire represented by uh, this silver chest and arms. How many arms does this guy have? Are you serious? You can't count? How many arms does this guy have? Two. You know there are three kinds of people in the world. Those that can count and those that can't. All right, so. Come on. That's for my children. Happy Father's Day. All bad jokes are referenced to my children. Um. So you got two arms. And this is representative of the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. And so last week we read, uh, last week in chapter 5, of literally the last night of the Babylonian Empire, right? Uh, pictured by the handwriting on the wall that uh, Belshazzar saw. And we talked about that last week. I won't go through that again, um, except to reference it. And so now we enter into the reign of the Medes and the Persians. And so what we're going to see here 
is Daniel, you know, is living now in a different era. So kind of put that together in your mind historically. Now, we also mentioned uh, when we went through this, um, this, this dream, chapter 2, that Daniel said that each of these kingdoms was going to be success, successively inferior. You remember that? Inferior in strength. And that, that does play out a little bit today. Different people interpret that different ways. One way is, you know, when uh, there was just one head uh, in the Babylonian Empire, and that was, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar said, that was, that was, that was law, right? And if he changed his mind, then now this becomes law. And the Medo-Persian Empire was a little more democratic. And so um, there, was, there was, you know, it was a strong empire, it was a powerful empire, but it was, in a sense, um, a little more, a little less authoritative, if you will. Does that make sense? And we'll see that uh, as how that plays out today. All right? Say goodbye to that guy. So, the Medo-Persian Empire is two arms, uh, and part of that is they're going to have laws that cannot be revoked. Ba- uh, in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar could revoke anything he wanted to. He could set up anything he wanted to. He could revoke anything he wanted to. In the Medo-Persian Empire, when they, when they establish a law, it cannot be revoked. So that's kind of, that plays into today. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, so that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Now, first of all, let me just say, as, as I think about it, people smarter than me have called this guy Darius. People smarter than me have called this guy Darius. I don't know which it is. Probably doesn't matter, right? VeggieTales had to come up with a word that rhymed with precarious, so we're going with Darius. All right? Everybody got that? This Darius is not to be confused with Darius the Great. Okay? And this is why I kind of highlight a little bit. We're talking about the Medes and Persians. They're working together to conquer Babylon and to establish this kingdom, but there's still a little bit the Medes and the Persians. And you recall, we've said this a million times before, in the ancient manuscripts, there are no chapter breaks. So if we don't have the chapter break that says 6, I got a big blue 6 right there on chapter 6, verse 1. If that didn't have a chapter break, I would read, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Well, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps in the whole kingdom and three governors over those, one of whom was Daniel. And so, just based on the context, I'm going to say this is probably Darius the Mede that we're talking about. So there's a Darius the Great. He reigned uh, 15 to 20 years after this period of time. This is not who we're talking about. That Darius the Great, and you'll hear people reference this a little bit, was actually a Persian king. He was the father of Xerxes that we read about in the scripture, okay? And so this is not Darius the Great. This is a different Darius. This is Darius the Mede. Well, we've talked about Bible critics, right, through the book of Daniel. Well, here you go again. There's no 
reference to a Darius the Mede outside of the scripture. So therefore, the scripture is not reliable, right? You did better at counting two arms, right? No, it doesn't mean it's not reliable. It just means that it's yet to be discovered. We talked about, if you weren't here last week, we talked about for a long time there was no reference to Belshazzar. The Bible says he was the king at that time. They say, well, there's no reference to that, and we know historically that Nabonidus was the king at that time. Well, and there's no reference, no reference until, I think, 1854, something like that. Yeah, 1854, archaeologists discovered what's called the Nabonidus Cylinder. It was an archaeologic find that referenced a guy by the name of Nabonidus and his son by the name of, guess what? Belshazzar. And it says that, and we know that Nabonidus was in Arabia at the time of the events of Daniel chapter 5, and he put his son Belshazzar in charge and let him reign as king during that time. Is the Bible consistent with archaeology? Always is, sooner or later, right? So prior to 1854, you'd say, if you're a Bible critic, you'd say, see, there it is. And then in 1854, you'd have to say, whoops. So here you have, again, a reference to a biblical king that at, at this point in time is no real identifiable figure, but sooner or later it's going to come out, right? And so who is this guy, Darius, uh, in Daniel chapter 6? There are a couple of theories, and I just tell you this so you can kind of, if, if you ever hear criticism of this, uh, these are a couple of theories. Some say there was a guy named Gubaru, who was a general that was appointed by King Cyrus, king of the uh, Persians. And so he entrusted this guy, Guberu, to rule the kingdom at this time, and he gave him the name Darius. The name Darius is, is a title, really means one who holds the scepter. So it could be that Darius is a title, kind of like Pharaoh, right? How many Pharaohs were there in ancient Egypt? A bazillion, right? Just, no, there's a bunch, right? Um, how many Caesars were there in ancient Rome? A bazillion, right? Well, could it be that there's a guy whose birth name was Guberu that we call Darius? That's possible. Uh, the problem is this guy's Darius the Mede. Um, so probably... This is just my theory, uh, and there's lots of theories out there. You can search them all day long. Uh, probably there was this sort of Medo-Persian empire. In the ancient world, if you have two nations that are kind of coming together to conquer Babylon, what do you think sooner or later is going to happen with those two nations? They're going to be like harmoniously like fit together like a team. Are there any teams in the ancient world? <laughs> no, not, usually not very long, right? And so there's a theory out there that I think is reasonable that the Medes and Persians kind of worked as a team. Darius was the first king of the Medes. Cyrus was probably the first king of the Persians. And when they first came in, Darius was the guy that's kind of conquering Babylon. And by the time Cyrus comes in, he's going to sort of erase uh, Darius's name from secular history uh, because that's what ancient kings like to do. You know, it's like football coaches, right? What happens in a new when you get a new college football coach? What happens to all of the old guys' assistant coaches? They're gone, right? 
And so, you know, some people would say that that's maybe what Cyrus did to Darius. I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. The point is all this. Back in Genesis chapter 3, the first recorded words out of the mouth of Satan were, did God really say that? First recorded words out of the mouth of Satan. He likes to cast doubt on the word of God. When did he stop doing that? He never has and he never will. So, you will never tire, if you look into this stuff, you'll never tire of hearing articulate criticism of the authority of the scripture, of the word of God. Why? Because Satan started it in Genesis chapter 3 and he's going to continue it until Jesus comes back. And that's just the reality that we live with. Uh, I've said before, you know, archaeology is a good friend of the scripture. Um, uh, honestly, a transformed life is a good friend of the scripture. Uh, creation is a good friend of the scripture. But you have, to have a, you have to have hearts that are willing to see it and eyes that are willing to see it and ears that are willing to hear it. And so that's really where we're at. So that's Darius. That's uh, some of that. And you see now, instead of Nebuchadnezzar just giving a, a one-man sort of uh, authority structure, Darius is setting an authority structure over the kingdom here. He's got 120 satraps. Think of them as like governors. 120 governors over the area, right? And three governors that are over the 120, right? Pretty simple government system, right? 120 guys sort of overseeing the kingdom and three guys overseeing the 120, right? And one of the three guys is our old friend, Daniel. All right? Now, again, for background, in chapter 5, where was Daniel? He was put on a shelf somewhere, right? Belshazzar, remember Belshazzar last week we read about, was acting king at the time of Babylon. He's having a party with a thousand of his closest associates. They're getting stinking drunk, having lots of fun, mocking the God of the Jews. And this weird hand comes out of nowhere and starts writing on the wall a, a, a phrase that nobody could quite understand. And nobody can figure it out. They bring in all the astrologers, all the soothsayers, all the magicians, all the Babylonian fortune tellers. Nobody can interpret this writing on the wall. And the queen, actually the mother of Belshazzar, says, you know what? There's this guy Daniel that knows stuff like this because he, he actually interpreted some of these things uh, previously in the, in the days of your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. And so they bring Daniel out. What's the point in all that? Daniel was not a part of the party. Daniel was not in the top thousand of the king's officials, right? Now, we have a new kingdom, and we have a new king. His name is Darius the Mede, right? And we've got 120 uh, uh, satraps, and we've got three guys that are over the 120 satraps. What's the point? The point is Darius recognizes something in Daniel that Belshazzar may or may not have recognized, but at least didn't, didn't value. So you see from the beginning, I want to kind of paint this picture a little bit, we see from the beginning, this guy Darius is a different kind of a leader than that guy Belshazzar. Fair enough? This guy Darius sees a guy like Daniel and elevates him, right? And so we can tell 
from, this, from, from just the structure that he's got set up, the position that he's given Darius, this guy recognizes a quality character. Verse 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because the, an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So Daniel is distinguishing himself such that, again, 120 satraps, three governors. The king's thinking about making Daniel like head of the three governors. What would that make Daniel? Second only to the king over the whole thing, right? It's because Daniel distinguished himself. I don't want to kind of split hairs with words, but I think, there's a, I think there's an important significance in the difference between Somebody distinguishing himself and somebody promoting himself or elevating himself. Does that make sense? Do you think Samuel, do you think Daniel weaseled his way into the king's favor? Do you think every time the king sneezed, Daniel pulls out a hanky and says, here you are, sir. Do you think he did this stuff like that? Do you think he like... You know who, you know, you know these people. You work with them, right? Or you have at some point in time. You've seen them. They're always around. When I was in school, they always sat in the front row. We called them gunners. Is that term still stick? Homeschoolers don't know. <laughs> They don't sit. They all sit in the back row. Matter of fact, they're in bed. <laughs> no, in this in school we called them gunners. They were all in the front row. Gunners, right? You know who they are. Was Daniel one of those? No. I think Daniel highlighted his attributes to the king. The king just so you know, you know I'm a pretty awesome guy. Hey, king, you ever have a dream? Just let me know. I'm your guy. Daniel do that? No. I'm going to bet that Daniel just quietly did his thing. Just quietly did his thing. You know, Proverbs speaks a lot about a guy like this. If you've got to sell yourself, you kind of miss the sale from the get-go. Right? I think Daniel just quietly did his thing. I love that. He distinguished himself. He didn't elevate himself. He didn't promote himself. And there's a big difference. But he distinguished himself. So much so that the king noticed. Now here again, let me just, let me just highlight this. We say, well, okay, so if I want to become the vice president, what, I got it, what you're telling me is I shouldn't pull out a hanky when the president sneezes, and I shouldn't, like, say too much, i got to be quiet, but i kind of got to do it so that he sees me, and, and if I do it, then by golly, for sure he's going to acknowledge me. Well, what do we say about Belshazzar? Did Belshazzar acknowledge Daniel? No. Was Daniel any less awesome in chapter 5 than he is in chapter 6? No. no. Here's the point. Some people recognize it and some people don't. That's not for us to figure out. That's not for us to worry about, right? What are we trying to do? We're just trying to live honorably before God. Because he died for us, and, he did, and, and the proper response, right, 
this is your reasonable service, Romans chapter 12, is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. I, I, I give my life to God, and that happens to be distinguishable character if I do that uh, faithfully, right? And guess what? There's going to be some people in this world that think that's awesome, and there's going to be some people in this world that don't. Darius did, Belshazzar didn't. Fair enough? So don't look for the praise of men. Just look to, and don't even look for the praise of God. I was telling somebody earlier, you know what? If you live that way, God will love you. If you don't live that way, God will love you. Right? Please catch this, Christian people. There is nothing you can do today to make God love you one ounce more than he does. And I say that emphatically because we carry that stuff around a lot, don't we? There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor more than it's already been given. And by the way, it's been given by God's grace in a way that we don't really understand it, but we've got to just accept it. And the more we accept it, the, the more we're free to just serve Him. Now, if I live a life of selfishness and sin, He doesn't love me any less, right? I believe He died on the cross for me. I don't think I'll lose my... I mean, that's, I won't even go there. Can I just not... Could I rewind the tape like 12 seconds? All right. So I can't make Him love me any less, right? You know what I do? I miss out on some fellowship with Him. If I live a life of self-indulgence, then that's what I get, self-indulgence. And what I miss is fellowship with him. And so, I think it's a beautiful statement here that Daniel, Daniel distinguished himself. Daniel distinguished himself. And this king, we're going to give this king some credit today, this king recognized it. Notice what else, uh, maybe the secret to Daniel's success, it says an excellent spirit was found in him. Now today, we have access to the most excellent spirit. His name is the Holy Spirit, right? Luke chapter 11. Jesus said, hey, if you guys, um, you know, if your son asks, this, maybe this is a good Father's Day verse as I'm thinking about it. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If your kid's hungry, Dad, he says, hey, can I have an egg? And you say, hey, here's a scorpion. Is that funny? That's not funny. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who are perfect and do all the right things and have perfect attendance and tithe properly and jump through all the religious hoops for Him? Does it say that? No, it doesn't say that. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who what? ask him there's no big ceremony there's no big religious hoops ask him say lord
please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Scripture, my Bible says, he'll be faithful to do that. And so, an excellent spirit was found in Daniel. We have access to the most excellent spirit by virtue of just merely asking. And he promises to fill us. So, verse 4, the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could, not find, they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall find, not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So this is amazing. I mean, don't lose, again, don't lose this for the familiarity. So there's 120 satraps. There's three governors. The king's thinking about making Daniel head of the governors, head of the three governors, right? All the satraps and the, and the other two governors, they get wind of this. <coughs> and it says, so. I want to know why we have to have a so there, right? Can't you just be happy for him? Right? I think if we have, if you're in a situation, maybe in the workplace, maybe in life, maybe wherever, and you see that someone is being promoted, maybe by God, maybe by the respect of other people, because that person has an excellent spirit, because that person has distinguished themselves by godly character, and you see them being elevated. In my mind, as I was thinking through this, you got three choices of how to respond to that. Number one, you can say, God bless you, that's awesome. Good for you. Not the most common response. <laughs> right? Number two, you can say, you know what? I'd, I'd kind of like that for my own life. If I'm honest with myself, I'd kind of like that. Maybe. I'd kind of like to get a promotion at work. You know, by, in the kind of the same way maybe this distinguished guy did. I might look to what is it about him that makes him recognized in this company and I'm going to try to maybe, maybe kind of look to him as a mentor. Is that fair? Yeah. Or, option number three, that scumbag's getting promoted. We need to take him out. <laughs> right? Those are basically our three options. If we see somebody getting promoted in the eyes of, of, the, of the world or the, just whatever, those are generally our three responses. And in this case, obviously, this is the wrong choice, and these guys uh, are going to take him out. Because they can't find anything to take him out over, by the way. So they have to do it, something concerning the law of his God. Now, keep in mind, Daniel by now is probably at least in his mid-80s, at least, He's been in public office, if you will. Remember, when, remember chapter 1 we talked about all the way back when, um, when he was brought with the captives from Judah, 605 B.C., right? And uh, they recognized that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were pretty, um, you know, they were wise and, and, you know, they would have been good people to kind of bring up into our government system. And so they were pretty quickly brought in to the king's court, Right? So Daniel's been in public office, we'll say, for close to 70 years by this time. Can you imagine? Can you imagine 
somebody serving in public office, imagine this just today, somebody serving in public office for 70 years and we cannot find any dirt on them? Imagine that. Do you know that guy? Uh, we got to read history in order to find one, right? We got to dig back 2,500 years to find one. So they can't find any dirt on Daniel. But they'll, don't worry, they'll find something. And in this case, they find it concerning the law of his God. And so let me just make one other point as I say this. You know, if you're going to be somebody that distinguishes yourself by godly character, which is what we want to be, we want to be like Daniel, right? Again, I said there'll be some people like Darius that are going to recognize that, that you're awesome. There'll be people like Belshazzar that don't recognize you're awesome. And then there's another group of people, the people that want to take you out because you're awesome, right? So you got the Darius, you got the Belshazzar, and you got these other guys. And so don't look to the praise of men. Jesus, as a matter of fact, said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, the truth is, this is a reality in life. I, you know, for the longest time, and deep down I still feel this way sometimes, but I've, I've slowly learned otherwise. For the longest time I always thought, you know, if I'm a good Christian, whatever that means, if I'm a good Christian and I keep my nose clean and I do all the right stuff, everybody's going to what? Everybody's going to love me. And they're going to say I'm awesome. Right? It doesn't work that way. It doesn't that work. As a matter of fact, there will be people that will persecute you because you're living godly. That's a reality of life. That's a reality of life. So, you know the story. Verse 6. So, these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. So it kind of softened him up a little bit, right? Live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. I kind of like this. So, do you remember when you were a kid? Let's say you're in maybe junior high. I'm talking to the adults that were in junior high. I'm not talking about junior hires today because you guys would never try this. You would never stoop to this, this level of degradation. You wanted to do something and your mom was like kind of on the fence, right? What would you say? What was your best line of defense? Anybody? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Right? And then you kind of dial that down. You ever, you, did, if your parents were smart, my parents did this every once in a while, it really bugged me. Well, you know, everybody's, when I was a kid, every seventh grader had a dirt bike. <laughs> right? They'd say, well, who's everybody? Well, okay, Mike. <laughs> right? 
Is this how this works? Come on, you guys were kids. I, I, maybe I'm just talking to the guys. It's Father's Day. Okay, let's take the guys, let's dial the guys down to junior high, right? We all did that. At least I did. So if I did it, I think everybody did it. O king, live forever. All the governors. How many governors are there? Three. 120 satraps, three governors, right? How many governors are there? Three. All the governors. Makes it sound like, man, we got a big old line of governors. He should have said both of the governors. Because we're talking about two out of three of them. Oh, all the governors of the, of the kingdom, like of the entire kingdom. The administrators and the satraps, the counselors and the advisors. Have we read about administrators, counselors, and advisors yet in, in establishing this government order? No, we haven't. We're just talking about the 120 satraps and, the, and two out of the three governors. But by the time they present it to the king, we're talking about all the governors of the, all the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors. They've all co consulted together to establish a royal decree, to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they start with partial truths. They add in a few extra administrators and counselors, kind of pad the numbers a little bit. Does this happen today? Yeah, it does. And then they appeal to the king's pride. They appeal to the king's pride. You know, if any of you guys, let's say 120 of you, I don't think there's 120 here, but let's say there's 120 of you, and you came to me and you said, hey, we've all consulted together. That whoever, like, bows down to anybody except you, just for 30 days, then they need to be killed. Just think about that for a second. Thankfully, we're in a little more civilized society, right? But what would, what would move me to say, that's an awesome idea, Right? Nothing should move me to say that's an awesome idea. So this guy Darius, you see what we got, what we got going here? We got a guy who's, we like him more than Belshazzar so far. He does recognize godly character, but he falls for tricks, right? He falls for flattery. He falls for smooth sales pitches. And he falls mainly because of his own pride. Now, he's going to repent. We'll get to that, right? But please catch this. Be careful about this. If you're looking to other people for your, uh, you know, your kudos, for your affirmation, you're on shaky ground. You might get a Belshazzar. You might get a Satrap, right? Instead, just distinguish yourself. Live an honorable, godly life and he's the one we're trying to please, right? He's the one we're trying to please. So, verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed. We're going to read that several times now. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. 
Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So we happen to have it all written out for you, right? And all you got to do is sign it, right? Somebody brings you something that's all written out like that, right? Don't, don't do that. Just do, at least read it, right? So king's going to sign it. And uh, we have now the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So again, we said when we showed the, the picture, of the, one of, the, one of the, the pieces that some people say the kingdom was inferior to the Babylonian kingdom was they had these laws that sort of a little more checks and balances than really what Nebuchadnezzar had. So, so this king has less power than Nebuchadnezzar had. He, if he makes a law, it cannot be altered. You may recall, you may or may not, that um, during, the, during the book of Esther, right? Uh, during the book of Esther, the uh, Haman convinced the king to sign a law that says on such and such a day, all the Jewish people in the kingdom, we're going to kill them all, right? Well, then you know the story. The king finds out that Haman was wicked and that Mordecai, actually the guy that saved his life, was in fact a Jew. And oh, by the way, Queen Esther who he seems to have a fondness for, is also a Jew. And so now I'm going to, does that mean this new law means I'm going to kill my wife, the queen, and the guy that saved my life that I want to give honor to? And so he kind of learns about this whole plot, and he realizes that Haman is wicked, but we got this law on the books that we can't alter. And so they had to issue another law that says, oh, by the way, on that day that's appointed for all the Jewish people to, to get killed, we now are going to allow the Jewish people to fight back. And by the way, we're going to give them a little government help to fight back, right? And so they couldn't alter the law. They just had to have another law that sort of was a little more, had a little more teeth in it than the, than the first law. And so this law, the law that, you know, if anybody bows to anybody other than you, O king, for 30 days, they're going to be thrown in the day of the lines. That law does not, that law doesn't change. So he signed the decree. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Now, how long was this decree for? 30 days. 30 days. You know, if I were Daniel, I might have thought, 30 days? God will understand. Would God understand? If Daniel stopped praying for 30 days, would God have understood? I already, said, I already gave you the answer. Would God love him any less? No. Nope. Would Daniel lose his salvation if he stopped praying for 30 days? No. That's not the point. Catch this now. When you live a life like we're talking about, Daniel, you don't ask questions like that. Like, will God love me any less? Like, like how much, like, truthfully, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Translation. Good teacher, how much can I get away with living by myself, living for myself, living a life of selfishness that's all about me, and still squeak my way into heaven. Right? That's what, we don't ask those kind of questions. 
we say, Lord, how can I live a life that honors you today? And so for Daniel, for even those 30 days, he's going to keep praying. He's going to keep praying. He knew the writing was signed. He was aware of it. But he wants to be faithful to God, as was his custom. He wasn't showing off. He wasn't being like uh, super pious, holier than thou. He was just doing what he normally did. And yet, on the other hand, he wasn't hiding either, right? So he wasn't showy, but he wasn't hiding. Now, let me just add here for a minute. This is Daniel's prayer life, as was his custom since his early days. I think that he kept praying because that was his normal routine, right? There's no, like, theological wisdom in that necessarily. This was just his routine. And so because it was a part of his godly discipline, it just became his normal thing. And let me suggest that I think that's part of this distinguished character that we're talking about, was his godly discipline. Are we saved by works? We're not saved by works. But is there, I think sometimes, because we know we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, we're forgiven of all of our sins, that we sometimes underestimate the value of godly discipline. Is that fair? There's tremendous value in godly discipline. Can I encourage you? Have a time with the Lord every day. Ideally, at least for me, it's in the morning. That's how I want to start my day. I want to start my day with the Lord. I want to have a, a disciplined Bible reading schedule. And that's different. I mean, if, if, and that's, again, I don't want to make a religion out of that. But I'm just telling you, I can't imagine not living that way. If I've lived that way, as was my custom, for a period of years and then a period of decades, right? This is how Daniel was. Let me encourage us. Yes, we're saved by grace. But there's a thing that happens in the life of a believer when he or she has a life of godly discipline. They have a tendency to live like Daniel. They're not earning points with God. They just have a tendency to live like Daniel. You want to be like Daniel when you grow up? I want to be like Daniel when I grow up. Then this is a good example. And because of his godly discipline, he's prepared for whatever, right? A couple years ago, this really resonated in my heart. And so if you were here then, you probably heard me talk about it all the time. So bear with me. But there's so much in the Bible that speaks about being prepared, right? And I remember when I, when I was, the Lord was really impressing this on me. Uh, when David told Solomon, prepare your heart, prepare with a, uh, uh, a willing, I think a loyal heart and a willing mind, something like that. And it really kind of dawned, it seemed like every time I opened the Bible, the word prepared is there. And as the Lord kind of ministered that in my heart, I realized, you know, if you think about it, 
most of life is all about being prepared. Right? You take a test in school. This is kind of how it, it resonated with me. You take a test in school. You go in on Monday, you go in on Monday morning at 8 a.m. to take a test. That is not the time to learn the material. Right? That is not an ideal time. There are lots of things I learned taking those tests. Right? I can tell you. Third year of college. Physical chemistry. 42% on the final. 42%. Now, he was a horrible teacher. And he had tenure. That always still bothered me. I'm not bitter, but... That's not the time to learn the material. Right? How much does that play out in our Christian life? Do you really know what's going to happen tomorrow? Really? No, but I tell you this. If you pray three times a day, if you have time with the Lord, if you're, if you're enjoying just daily fellowship like it's your habit it's who you it's your habit so much that it's who you are then I don't care what happens tomorrow I'm ready now will you know are there things that might happen that throw me a curve you bet things throw us curves all the time but I think there's there's a principle that we need to be prepared as we navigate this life because life happens day by day. And stuff happens day by day. Stuff outside of our control, definitely within the sovereignty of God, for sure. But there's a, there's a principle about being prepared for the events of life. And that, at least in our responsibility part of it, that comes from godly disciplines. Daniel, he's a guy that's been pe- praying three times a day since his youth and this is no different just because the king happened to sign some stupid decree based on his pride and his vulnerability to being flattered. As was his custom. That's a great, great line. Verse 11. Then these men assembled, found Daniel praying, making supplication before his God. That's against the law around here. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? king answered, Oh, yeah, the thing is true, according to the law of Medes and Persians, which does not alter. All right. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, not like the guy you're thinking about making first of the governors, that Daniel, one of the prisoners from Judah. Is he that Daniel? Or he's like, Sir Daniel, Lord Daniel. No, he's that Daniel, one of the prisoners from Judah. He does not show due regard for you, O king, for the decree that you have signed, but makes petition three times a day. So the trap has been set. The victim has been caught. Everything's good. Now the rest of the 120 satraps and two governors can live happily ever after. And the king, actually not, in case you read the story. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with who? 
himself. Himself. He knew it. He knew he'd been duped, and, he, and I believe with all my heart, he knew that he was duped because of his vulnerability to his own pride. I think he learned a great lesson that day. He was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Do you think the king knew that? He knew that. We've read it, I think, three times so far. Right? King, in case you forget, I know you've you got a lot on your mind. In case you forget, that law can't be changed. Daniel's cooked. And so, king's upset with himself. He tries to figure a way to weasel, weasel out of this, but he can't. You know, if you're in a position of leadership in any capacity, you're going to find yourself in difficult situations. That's just a reality. And let me just say, you've got to be super careful about pride. Because pride to a person in authority can have lots of ramifications. So the king totally realizes this, he, but he's stuck now. He's stuck. So they gave the command, verse 16. And they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Right? Easy for the king to say. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that, he, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. So again, I want you to see the, I want to, I want to explore the heart of the king here a little bit. I want you to see this king. Would we say he's a good guy? If you had to like dissect him down to good or bad, would you call him good or bad? Anybody? Good. I'm going to call him a good king. I mean, we've seen worse, right? We saw worse last week. I'm going to call this guy a good king. But he's definitely not all that we want out of godly character. Is that fair? We're seeing some flat spots in his life, in his character. We're seeing some, some vulnerability to pride. We're seeing that it's kind of like we can't make up our mind if we like this guy or not. Is that fair? And so one of the things that we like about him is that he really has seemed to have a respect for, for God. Hey, Daniel's God. He's Daniel's God. Your God, whom you serve continually, I think he's going to deliver you. I think he's able to deliver you. I'm hoping that he'll deliver you. And so then he goes home and he, and he fasts that night. He doesn't sleep all night. Some commentators I like this say that Daniel probably slept better that night than the king did. Think about that. Verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. So he is genuinely concerned about Daniel. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? So again, the king's faith is weak, 
but I think he's got some kind of faith. Like, he's asking the question at least, right? I mean, the rest, it, it, from a purely secular point of view, we would assume that Daniel's done. You throw him into a pit of lions, and he's done. Now, some say, some, remember we said there's Bible critics out there? Remember we said there's Bible critics out there? Yeah. Some of them say, well, you know what the king did? When nobody was looking, he killed three or four or five cows out of his livestock herd. He probably had some cows in his herd, right? He killed a bunch of them real quick, threw those down the shaft of the lion's den. So that way, by the time Daniel got there, they were all full. They were done. They were chilled, relaxed, well-fed lions, just kind of burping when Daniel showed up. Does that happen? We'll read about, we'll answer that question here in a second, okay? But the king is asking Daniel, has your God saved you? I think there's a principle here. The king has sort of a faith, but it's really a secondary faith. It's a secondary faith. He's got faith. He's got some degree of faith in Daniel's God. Does that make sense? Kids, can I tell you this? If you're listening to me now, listen, if, if you haven't been, first of all, I understand. Second of all, I'm going to say listen now. You've got to have your own faith. Not just your parents. Fair enough? We have to have our own faith, not Daniel's. We've got we to gotta have a relationship with God that's our own. Not Daniel's. Not the pastor's. Not Chuck Smith's. Not whoever but our own. And I think a lot of us in church, I was this way for a long time, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of us in church just have that sort of secondary relationship with the Lord. We've heard about Him. We've read a lot of stories about Him. We've heard a lot of hours upon hours of teaching about Him. But it's just not quite my faith. Now, if that's you, can I tell you this? God doesn't love you any less than he loves anybody else. But let me just encourage you. There is so much more to be had out of a relationship with God. There's so much more to be had. See, when we have our own faith, then we experience God working in our lives. At the end of the day, who will say more so, that was awesome? Daniel or the king? Daniel, right? He experienced God's deliverance. The king witnessed God's deliverance. There's a big difference. 
There's a big difference between me experiencing the Lord work in my life and me observing the Lord work in your life. Does that make sense? You say, well, uh, uh, that's, that's not necessarily me. Can I encourage you? Ask the Lord. Make yourself real to me, please. Now, you might find yourself in a lion's den. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But sometimes he lets us go through those things. And while I'm thinking about it, let me just say this. Too often we don't experience those things. We don't experience the Lord's deliverance because we're pretty good. We're Americans now. You know, Americans do a great job of insulating themselves from trial and tribulation. Fair enough? I could buy lion's den insurance if I want. Right? A couple hundred bucks a year, lion's den insurance, I can cross that one off my list, don't have to worry about that. Right? I can sort of buy my way out of certain risks. And I'm not saying don't buy insurance. I'm just saying... You know, sometimes we can sort of insulate ourselves from God's going to take care of me. I'm, and I'm preaching to myself now. I can insulate myself from God's going to take care of me. God's going to deliver me. God's going to see me through this thing. And the only way I really get to experience God seeing me through this thing is to faithfully obey God through this thing. Now, sometimes God says, buy the insurance. Sometimes I can't tell what he's saying, and so I may buy the insurance, and I may not. But you know what I'm saying. Be careful not to insulate yourself so much from uh, the Lord working in your life. I guarantee you, at the end of this experience, Daniel had a story to tell. Right? Daniel had a story to tell. The more we experience God, the more we know Him. And the more we know Him, the more we experience Him. Because it's a relationship. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. The more we experience Him, the more we know Him. So verse 21, Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. So God delivered Daniel and we know that story. Verse 24, then the king, the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. So were the lions well-fed and chilled? No, they're pretty ravenous. So was it truly a miracle of God that he pre preserved Daniel? Yes, it was. Now, this brings up another point. Their family went with them. Is that an endorsement by God that that's how it works? Not at all. Not at all. It's just an observation. Just because something happens in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that God 
supports it or condones it or thinks it's a good idea, right? And sometimes we wrestle with this, right? Like we wrestle with, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, theologically we kind of wonder what we do with the fact that David had, King David had a bunch of wives, right? We know what we think about Solomon's wives, right? They led him astray. But there's no real record that King David's, all of his wives kind of really led him astray necessarily, but it seems like there was a little bit of a, that was kind of a little bit of a dark spot in David's life. And what do we really think about polygamy, right? You know, God doesn't really say, God doesn't really speak a lot on it in life, in the life of David, right? So is God endorsing it or not? What's God saying in Genesis? For this cause, what? A man shall be joined to his wife. A man, a woman, married. Right? So just the fact that something is mentioned in Scripture, don't take that to mean that God endorses that in Scripture. And I give you that as an example because, again, the Bible critics are going to come at you with that one. Right? What is this? Like a guy's family goes down into the pit because... You know, because he had a bad idea? Well, yeah, that was an evil practice uh, by ancient civilizations. However, I will say this. And again, maybe this is a Father's Day thing. Men, your sin does not affect just you. Our decisions... And really, this applies to all of us. I'm just thinking men because I'm M1. But so often, we think, you know, when we're struggling with sin or we're wrestling with, you know, I really want to do this and I know it's wrong, but I really feel like I want to do it anyway. And you're kind of doing this sort of mental math in your mind. And, and you, you know, what are the consequences going to be? And I think I'm willing to spend that price on that, right? I think I'm willing to pay the price for what I think is going to be this bit of pleasure or this bit of satisfaction. I know it's wrong, but it's got a cost, and I'm willing to, cost, I'm willing to pay the cost. Nobody anywhere in all of history knows the cost. I am so convinced of this. I've seen this so many times. Nobody can accurately count that cost. And again, that's not a statement of condemnation. That's a statement of God would like to protect us from that. So, yes, the Old Testament law was clear that children were not to be punished for their parents' sins, but the reality throughout the scripture is children are affected by their parents' sins. Families are affected by their parents' sins. Friends, churches, are affected by their parents' sins. And so that's the reality of life. That's a warning for us today, right? Yesterday and beyond, there's grace for that, right? There's grace. There's opportunity for healing. There's opportunity for redemption. There's all of that. But for today, just, just recognize that. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion, <clears throat> dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. 
For he is the living God, he's, and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so again, we see the king... We saw this with Nebuchadnezzar a couple times. We see the king honor God, honor God's faithful servant Daniel. Uh, and yet he still calls him Daniel's God. Still calls him the God of Daniel. Now, one of the themes we've talked about over and over in this book is that the book of Daniel is all about the sovereignty of God. And please notice this. God is sovereign over kingdoms, right? God said this is going to be the order of the kingdoms, and guess what? That, that's played out so far, right? And it'll continue to be played out prophetically. Um, I refer you back to chapter 2. God is sovereign over kingdoms. God is sovereign over nations. God is sovereign over individuals, right? God took good care of Daniel. In our lives, we have any lions in our context today? Yes, we do. First Peter chapter 5 says this. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he says to be sober. That means to be serious. To be vigilant. That's kind of the, that's the godly disciplines that we're talking about, right? Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, we all have an adversary. Your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants us. Right? Now, again, some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, in my mind, I always go back to the, a picture of the zoo, right? Between you and the lion, there's a what? There's a fence. Right? Can the lion get you at the zoo? No. Not as long as you stay on the right side of that fence. Right? If you will, Jesus is our fence. The lion cannot, the lion cannot get us. Right? The lion cannot overpower us. But if we're not careful, the lion can injure us. And so we need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. The lion would like to trip us up a little bit. And I think we need to be on guard. So, faithfulness to God requires faith in him enough to trust that his ways are best. And sometimes that means he takes us through things that we can't necessarily insure against. Right? But if we are faithfully following him and faithfully obeying his word, faithfully by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives then we're prepared for whatever he can bring our way or whatever the enemy wants to bring our way. And if God brings us, God will take us through stuff. 
God will bring us through. And as he does that, we get to experience him working in our lives. If we are being faithful, don't expect the world to celebrate with us. There will be some people that might think we're awesome, and there will be some people that think we're not awesome, and there's some people that want to take us out. That's the reality. But God wants us to experience him as our God. Not as Daniel's God, not as your mama's God, not as your Uncle Billy's God. God wants us to experience him for our own self. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all you did in Daniel's life and 2,500 years later, all that you do in our lives. Lord, we're thankful that you carry us through things, the trials of this world. As you told your disciples, in this world, we will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. You have overcome the world. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have overcome the world. We're thankful that we can endure tribulation because of you, by your grace. And so, Lord, help us to... uh, be people who serve you wholeheartedly as our God. Help us to have those godly disciplines that prepare us for the challenges and the uncertainties of life. And help us to live lives that bring glory and honor to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.